What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late that nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears? Here where I stand at the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and they murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead. Just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Three, two, one. I, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I know you booed all the uh, solo podcasts that came on before me, but I I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. Who here likes jacking off in sleeping bags? I know I ain't the only one. Look at my man in the dry fit t-shirt. You know. Hey guys, it's Felix. I am giving you, as promised, the second bonus episode this week. Uh, As you know, our bonus episode last week was free as a Thanksgiving treat and also to, uh, you know, prove we're not a racist show. The bonus episodes are usually the most racist ones. That's, you know, par for the course. So we did an unusually non-racist one and we put it out there and uh, we won the media war. Not going to be talking about the articles on my solo episode. I have been taking requests. Obviously, the first thing I got a lot of was Les Miserables. Uh, Les Miserables does curiously not come up that much on the uh, on the show. I attribute this to I got to do a show for everyone. Um, I have to get in the quota of the my responsibility to say 90% of the problematic stuff on the show. But yeah, I don't bring it up because it's a, it's a musical. Most people, most of the listeners don't want to hear about that. The broke boys, they are depressed, work at Starbucks, have trust funds, are on welfare. Uh, they're homophobic and they're gay. So they're not going to be seeing a musical. But, uh... I consider myself kind of a renaissance man. I'm a gamer first and foremost. I'm an athlete. I'm a media entrepreneur. I'm a writer. And uh, most importantly, a genius annotator. So, Les Miserables is a pretty simple story. That is if you ignore numerous of the other plot elements. But, you know, frankly, the plot elements outside of the core plot are kind of boring. I do not remember a lot of the characters' names. I do know Cosette, obviously. I don't know most of the guys that Valjean hung out with, the young guys. I've seen it in its entirety, you know, many times. Only the 10th anniversary edition, that's the best one. Uh, Philip Quest, of course, was born to play Javert. But, you know, I just, I skip ahead, mostly, to the only Valjean, or only Javert, or only Javert and Valjean parts. Because this is the key element to the story. You see, Les Miserables is a love story. And it's about the most painful type of love. Unrequited love. This unrequited love is between 
Javert and Valjean. Let's let's go to the first number. Look down. Look down. Look down. You, you know, the work song. Uh, so, when Javert and Valjean, their first interaction is at the end of the song, where Valjean, sort of before his transformation, he's resentful. He's talking about how he's been in prison for all these years, we're stealing, stealing bread. Uh, Javert says, "No, you're you did you did more time because you tried to escape." And this key moment in that song, where you realize that uh, you know second secondary big theme of the musical transformation and the fungibility of uh, the moral character of both main characters, because. You see that right after uh, Javert calls him 24601, his number in prison, and Valjean defiantly says, my name is Jean Valjean. And Javert, of course, goes, and, my, and I'm Javert. Javert sort of sets him up as this dick who's going to tell him forever. But why, why does Javert have such a hard-on for Valjean? Like, immediately. I think it's pretty clearly lust. I'm not kidding. Um, what is one of the big traits of Valjean outside of his moral transformation, but an innate trait that existed before all of this happens? It's his enormous physical strength. Javert recognizes Valjean years later after he skips uh, parole, kind of. So he picks up an ox cart that fell on a guy. Javert just has this magnetic attraction to Valjean from the moment that he sees him. You know, Valjean is our classic hero. He's sort of, he's handsome, he's strong, he's bold, he's daring, and Javert desires that. And through the years, of course, Javert pursues Valjean. He pursues him because the Javert hates Valjean for making him lust after him. And he has to penetrate him. But not penetrate him sexually, because that's out of the question. Javert, as we see in his song Stars, is an incredibly religious, deterministic man. He's about as close to a Calvinist as a hardcore French Roman Catholic can get. I mean, after all, in confrontation, he says, men like you will never change. Men like me will never change. But he has to, this is the way that he can both punish Valjean and penetrate him, bring him down below his level by handcuffing him, throwing back, throwing him back into a cage. But this plays in to the secondary theme that we see in this first song. The ability of men to change. The nature of men. Javert is a deeply self-loathing character. In the song Confrontation, which is actually the most important song that Javert is a part of, not even Stars, not even his suicide song, he reveals that he was born in a prison. I was born with scum like you. I am from the gutter too. That's an incredibly important element to Javert's character. Javert was born among 
what he sees is the lowest form of humanity and he thinks this dooms him forever but the best thing he thinks he can do with his sort of or soul that has more original sin than anyone else's is to use his sense and his cunning and his brutality to keep society in line he believes very firmly in hierarchy in punishment and he thinks that his nature as a very low creature makes him very specially suited for that. He's a man who his own act of self-denial is sort of punishment to himself for just being brought out into this world so low. Javert has very few vices. He does snuff once in a while, but compared to Valjean, who despite his innate sense of duty and honor, it's a very what a joie de vivre. Uh, Javert is brilliant at his job as a police officer, but he does not really enjoy any second of his life. And this is on purpose. <laughs> but one thing that frustrates Javert so much about Valjean is that Valjean shows the ability for men to change. Javert has based his entire life, his entire pursuit of enforcement, of punishment, from overseeing the prison to tracking down fugitives, is seen by the way that he treats Fantine. He treats Fantine terribly, treats everyone else terribly, every other criminal terribly, despite the circumstances, despite what they say, despite what would be obvious to anyone with a sort of moral meter independent of rigid hierarchy. The criminals will always be criminals and the highborn will always be highborn. The fact that Valjean, after he skips parole, after he becomes a factory owner and goes on the lam from that, that he does things like he, he saves somebody's life. It drives Javert crazy. And it always it drove him a little bit crazy. It's the first time, you remember the first time that they run into him after Valjean is the factory owner, Monsieur Le Maire. He lets, uh, lets Valjean go. But this is it's a very crucial thing that Javert says. He says, Jean Valjean, before I knew you, all I knew was a straight line. This is a very loaded line. I mean, beyond just like the innuendo here that Javert thought he was straight until he met uh, Valjean. It's also that straight line was just something, you know, a flat line down the x-axis, like going up and down the y-axis. Someone is at this level of morality forever, or at this level or at this level. The fact that Valjean repeatedly acts selflessly not that he was a bad guy before. His his crime that landed him in prison was not a self selfish act. But he was very resentful before. But that he lives his life for others, even after the punishment that Javert and the rest of the state have inflicted upon him, calls into question the entire moral determinism of Javert's worldview, and therefore the entire point of his life. Now... Both of these things come to a head right before Javert plunges himself into the river Seine. 
Valjean says, you can take me back to prison. I will. Valjean is pretty much volunteering for a life sentence at this point. But he goes, you can take me back to prison as long as you let this boy live. He needs to live. Remember what they said in that prison in that very first song. Look down, look down, you'll always be a slave. Look down, look down, they've all forgotten you. Look down, look down. You'll die in here. Valjean didn't just deny that by running away or skipping parole. He denied that by saying, no, I'm not always going to be 24601. Ironically, he does declare, I am... Who am I? I'm 24601 before he escapes from his story as the factory owner. But the 24601 could be more than that. Javert's, uh, Javert's suicide song, right after confrontation, right after Javert lets him go to save the young man's life. Who is this man? What kind of devil is he to have me caught in a trap and let me go free? Uh, uh, then sort of bemoaning that he could have killed or apprehended Valjean, but Valjean could have killed him. Valjean's the stronger man. Valjean had him dead to rights at one point and could have gutted him like a fish, but he didn't. Javert feels this sense of worthlessness, you know, that not only after decades he cannot penetrate Valjean. Valjean wouldn't even penetrate him. Valjean's beliefs, they lie outside of the very simple moral universe of Javert. He doesn't have any of Javert's priorities. They do not see life in remotely the same way. Valjean is beloved and he's touched the lives of hundreds. He's lived this massive life. And Javert, despite his titles, he's lived a very, very small life. He lives in a very small moral universe. And also, in the scope, in Valjean's scope of humanity, Javert isn't to be respected because he's a member of the state, because he's an upstanding citizen, because he's a devout Catholic. He's to be let to live because he's a human being. Javert can't comprehend someone just letting you do something because you're a human being. And he can't comprehend that he, Javert is nothing special to Valjean. But he just let him live because that's who Valjean is. And Valjean became a different person despite the efforts of Javert. With his whole life in question. And the love absolutely unrequited by Valjean. Javert cannot go on. This is what kills Javert. In, in short, Lemus Rabla is a brilliant love story, but unrequited love story. It's, uh, you know, I know in Hamilton that uh, fucking Aaron Burr shot the bursar, sir, or in Rent, uh, you know, I guess all the squatters, you know, they, 
They have AIDS and, uh, and cats, you know. They're all uh, meowing. I used to post on this uh, gaming message board, and there's a furry who took the identity of, I think, one of the characters in Cats, and everyone fucking hated him. Uh, makes you wonder if Cats didn't start the whole furry thing. It probably did. You know, there's... Furry, you know how, like, ice cream used to be solely for rich people because they could only afford uh, refrigeration? Well, furries were actually... That only used to be rich people because only they could afford to go see cats. But the internet sort of made it a thing for everyone. It uh, took the honor out of it. It took it out of the aristocracy. And uh, it's one of the one of the pretty bad consequences of uh, capitalism as opposed to hierarchy. Maybe Javert was right. Only the furries should be rich. But uh, anyway, what else did people want me to talk? Oh yeah, no. All right. So we've got an article coming out for Deadspin. I know that I've been saying this for a while. I've been talking about the same article. It's an article I wrote about Saudi Arabia. What a shock! It's not an article I wrote about the politics necessarily of Saudi Arabia, but it's the most reporting I've ever done. It is. Tentatively titled, Hell is for Children. It's about the lives of uh, minors, LGBT, atheist, migrant worker, teenagers, and young adults in the kingdom. What their lives are like. It's uh, I talked to 15 people for it. Mostly Saudis, but I talked to a lot of Egyptians, Palestinians, just people who'd sort of been in this circle, because this, this started out as a story about something different. It started out about the phenomenon of people who dox people on Gulf Twitter, and that's a, it's a pretty big deal to do that to someone there, because a lot of the GCC countries in the state can punish you pretty fucking badly if you you are doxed and revealed to be gay or revealed to be an atheist or. Even worse, revealed to be insulting your government, in which case they will kill you sometimes. The Saudi Arabia has killed quite a few bloggers, but um, that just sort of started, started as the stack story because I saw this story unfold in real time about this girl being doxxed by this fucking asshole who lived in the Emirates, and it only stopped. The girl lived in uh, Qatar. No, she lived in Kuwait. Uh, where punishment isn't as bad by the state, but you still run the risk of being punished pretty badly by the family. There are a lot of stories of families just in Gulf countries just sort of killing a child who turns out to be gay. Often cases just saying, you know, in one case that I heard, it was cleaning a gun and this happened. Like, just really ghoulish shit. But, uh... Of course, Twitter didn't respond to it in time, uh, not because they liked the guy, but because they simply don't have enough Arabic speakers on the support team. They, of course, speak Arabic when Prince Awalid bin Talal uh, buys part of Twitter, but that's neither here nor there. I'm glad that they can uh, you know, have enough uh, people on support to ban me or ban Grabaka Hitman, who is a great MMA GIF account. But hey, what are you going to do? Anyway, 
it just it was going to be a story about that. And I talked to a lot of people that knew people on golf Twitter, which included sort of Egyptian activists, other Arabic speakers who didn't necessarily live in the Gulf, but it became this bigger thing because I ended up talking to a lot of people who lived in Saudi Arabia. I uh, I was connected with a lot of them. Some of them I already knew before. I was I was fucking blown away by how open all of them were. They were wanted to uh, be very generous with the details of their life. How the nonstop pain and fear and suffering that they feel of lying all the time of not knowing when it's all going to end. Probably the saddest things I've ever heard doing any type of reporting. But uh, then it just sort of became about that. It became about that because, you know, you, you have this one tech angle, but then it becomes a much more important human story. And that original you know, thing about doxing and stuff, that's still in there. That's how it all starts out. But it just became, became sort of a report about what it, what is it like to live there? If you're atheist, if you're gay, if you're a migrant worker, if you speak out against the government, what? Because most of the people who criticize Saudi Arabia as much as, you know, we do or I do, they, they're paleoconservatives, right? And they, they're not... It's not a very compassionate place you come from. They're just going from this very isolationist, Pap Buchanan, pragmatic way of thinking where they think everyone who lives in the country is a Salafist, Wahhabist, whatever. They don't give a shit. But I think it's important to recognize that Saudi Arabia is a totalitarian government. It's uh, a pretty goddamn awful place to live for most of the people who live there, especially the migrant workers who make up a third of the population. The migrant workers I talked to, that was sort of a blind spot, I will admit, for when I first started writing it, but it was, that was fucking horrifying. And sometimes I think that we in America, we believe we're the most racist country on earth, but yeah, a lot of places can give us a run for our money. But anyway, it's uh, it's the longest thing I've ever written professionally. It's about 5,000 words. And I do go into a lot of how Saudi Arabia kind of got this way. And I do talk a lot about the consequences of the seizure of the Grand Mosque, which was a massive event that changed Saudi Arabia a lot. In uh, 1979, you know, stop me if you've heard this one before, but a group of crazy rich guys who thought their friend was the Mahdi rose up against the government. Yeah, still happens. But uh, it's, uh, you know, this group of losers that take the Grand Mosque and Saudi troops... Famously, Saudi Arabia does not have an army. They have a protection racket. They're unable to take it back. The Saudis have to call in Pakistani commandos, French commandos. The the rumor, and I don't know if it's a rumor, it happened so long ago, the legend, I don't know if this really happened or not, is that uh, because non-Muslims could not enter the Grand Mosque, they made the French commandos convert to Islam to go in shoot all of them and leave and then they got to convert back when they got out I don't know if that's true or not but um, 
No, they had to bring in foreign soldiers to protect their own mosque, and it was a fucking humiliation. And this had happened after the Iranian Revolution and great time of populist uprisings and, you know, King Faisal, the most competent king in Saudi history, had been killed a few years before. And they had King Khalid, who was not as much of a visionary. The King Faisal actually killed by similar forces to what took the Grand Mosque. Someone who thought that having TV stations and skyscrapers was an abandonment of the old way. But uh, Prince Turkey and uh, Prince Nayef, they got together the upper management of the kingdom with King Khalid and they decided that they needed to fully embrace social conservatism even more that they had to embrace the Lama even more the religious authority um, and had to give the religious police even more power because you know I said that Faisal had been killed a few years earlier by similar forces well before that even Faisal was obviously getting a lot of shit from hardliners because of how much he wanted to change the country with regards to education with regards to uh, development with regard to how Saudi Arabia was on the world stage um, and he ended up giving the concessions to the hardliners which was he packed the schools with hardliners and Faisal could sort of play the game of politics and be brilliant in uh, court politics especially and fight a very careful fight against the hardliners. I mean, he probably gave up too much because his concessions being guided by the cowardly and... uh, a solely self-preserving hand of King Khalid and his successors and the upper management of the kingdom led to this. In the 1980s, uh, they went more social conservative than ever. There were huge rallies where people would just burn photographs just against the concept of photographs as a form of idolatry. They, uh, in this time of greater embrace of religion they had another brilliant idea Prince Turkey uh, as the head of Saudi intelligence the most pious and rich kids in the kingdom like those who took the mosque like those who killed King Faisal like Osama bin Laden went on jihad to Afghanistan And the Saudis made sure that they had a lot of money. They had a lot of weapons. They had a a lot of links to American intelligence. Because what is better than killing two birds with one stone? Not only do you get the biggest threats as you see them to your own rule, out of the kingdom, you get to strike at uh, a hated enemy, the Russians. This later became sort of a huge feature of... uh, Saudi foreign policy never really had a military as I've said they mostly rely on mercenaries and nations who will lend their military in exchange for money as Pakistan is doing as they're kind of doing with Egypt as they finally turned on the Muslim Brotherhood Um, but 
you know, you, you never, no one ever gets a free lunch. Mm. Well, I guess the, the, the princes did because they got to, uh, they got to rule forever. The hardliners let them because the hardliners got to go on their thing, go on, go on their trips, repress everybody, get everyone to burn photographs. But those teachers that Faisal brought in and that wave of conservatism brought in after 1979 as a response. The consequence was that, yes, the uh, royals got to keep their shit. They got to keep their power. They got to keep their money. They got to keep Aramco. But uh, an entire generation is fucking insane more than ever. Uh, They are the ones who act horribly tyrannical to the people I talk to. These are their parents, the ones who came up in the school system that Faisal developed. Obviously, these were pre-existing problems, problems of homophobia, problems of abuse of, of uh, 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 abuse of children, uh, treatment of atheists, but they were absolutely aggravated by this policy. It's not like they didn't exist before. It's not one of those silly things where you go, oh, here's, uh, here's fucking Afghanistan in 1960. Look at it now. Look at the women wearing skirts. No, this was obviously already a disaster waiting to happen, but it just got much worse. You can always make things worse. But uh, I talk about that. I've been in the article, and uh, yeah, um, not to sound too earnest, don't worry, I'm going to go back to saying slurs, but it was a very sad thing to write, but it was also kind of encouraging in some ways because there is a lot of courage people like that talking, people who can be sent to prison for having the wrong things on their phone or blogging or whatever they were not only wanted to talk to me for it and get the story out there as people would know you look on their pages, it's all Black Lives Matter, it's all Solidarity for Innocent, it's all No ADL Pipeline people are not ignorant to the struggles of the wider world, even with their situations being fucking terrible and uh you know, no matter how many PowerPoints the illiterate, stuttering moron Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman does uh, about how much he's going to change Saudi Arabia, that is the only thing that could ever change them. People that courageous, the people I talk to. One thing I was not able to get into the, that much in the article, because there's sort of scant documentation, but I might... If I'm able to talk to some people, figure something out. Uh, I'm not really that good of a reporter, so it would take me a pretty fucking long time. Was the thing of extra legal renditions? Now, I saw this on uh, Gulf Twitter. Also, this girl who had escaped to Turkey with her partner. She was a she was a lesbian. Uh, she, rich, she was from a rich Qadari family and people sort of saw in real time this g- girl's family got private security to basically kidnap her and get her on a private jet and get her back to Qatar and fucking God knows what but you know this is talk about uh, something you never hear about there is 
the more and more people I talked to, the more that, you know, not them directly, but they'd heard or seen something in the past about something like this, about someone from a family in Saudi Arabia or Qatar, Kuwait or uh, Oman even, getting extra-legally renditioned even after they've gotten asylum in countries. I've, I've now heard about this happening in New Zealand, of all places. It's one thing if it happens in Turkey. It's still fucking insane that it happens in Turkey, but you figure, like, okay, well, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, have they work on a lot of projects together, I guess we could say. They work on some projects in Syria. They definitely some strong ties between them. And, uh, well, I mean, we know about how easy it is to bribe Turkish authorities, but New Zealand, that's a little bit fucking crazy. And you got to wonder how deep does this go? Do these countries know that this is happening? I don't know, but it's, I was not able to get enough confirmation or get enough hard uh, data on it to put too much of it into the article. But instead, if I write another thing about, uh, sort of. Gulf world again this year will be that and kind of fucking hard to figure out where to begin with that I guess I got to talk to a lot of the same people some new new people have, have contacted me since I got done with the article but uh, again I'm kind of a shitty reporter I'm not as good as Brendan so it may take me a minute but uh, no it's pretty fucking fascinating so we'll see what we go to that. Uh, thank you to Tim Marchman for editing it. It's going to be out, I don't know, next week or something. It did sit in my documents for like a month. Uh, someone wanted it to uh, put it in a in Washington Post. And it was very nice of them. But I was also like, Washington Post is never going to run me. I've probably harassed half of their editors and staff writers, and also it's too fucking long. Um, and it kicked around a lot of other places. But uh, thank you to Deadspin for letting me do everything that I always want to do. And I'm excited for you guys to read this one. It's a... Uh, I'm not exactly reporting a ton of new information, but I do think it's important for people to sort of see what it's like for people over there in this country that we talk a lot about in very abstract terms, see that there are consequences, or not consequences, that there are realities to living in a totalitarian regime. Anyway, sorry to get serious for a second, but uh, you asked, you asked me to talk about the Saudi article. Anyway, I've fulfilled my quota. That's, uh, we're about at 38 bad boy minutes. I did give you the second bonus, as I said I would. See you guys next week. I am working on a bunch of new slurs to say. New things that the show will get yelled at. New insults to level at activists. And, uh new horrifying descriptions of jacking off for Rebecca Tainster to write about. Have a great weekend, everybody. Yet why did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other 
He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world. This world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stars. This is all I have lived for. One word from him and I'd be back Beneath the lash upon the rack Instead he offers me my freedom I feel my shame inside me like a knife He told me that I had a soul How does he know What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in. As I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world. On the world of Shambhal Shah. Shambhal Shah is nothing now!